Well, let's pray as we begin. Oh, Lord God, we ask that you would um, be with us in this time. You are with us always, but um, we ask, Lord, that right now you would open our eyes to your great love for those in need. Uh, Show us our own needs. Show us the needs of those around us. Uh, Lead us to pray and persevere in seeking your will um, and to bring your kingdom. Bring your kingdom into our midst um, by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, um, as with last week, I'm not sure if you were if you were here last week and you got to hear part one of the biblical vision for outreach at the Advent. That was good news for all nations, good news for all the nations of the world. I'm, I like to bite off more than I can chew, but and I also took uh, um, basically the view from 20,000 feet throughout Scripture. What does the Bible have to say? What does God say to us through the Bible about? Um, the uh, um, mission to the world. There's a lot, and I just dipped in and covered a little bit from that bird's eye view, going soaring, going really fast, and we kind of went through, and then we looked at, we looked and heard from the girls who went on the trip to Nicaragua, and it was so nice to hear them talk about their experiences there, what they saw, what they experienced, and how the Lord used it in their lives. Um, so, it, but I'd also like to say we didn't really get a whole lot of time for questions about all world missions. So we can talk some biblical, a biblical vision for outreach uh, on a global perspective. So we can talk about that. You can ask me questions at the end of this, both about that and then about this other component of local outreach and local ministry. Um, basically, the reason why I've divided this up in this way is that the whole outreach ministry is divided up into those two components. Um, the, and the outreach ministry is um, complicated, very complicated, which is one of the reasons why I'm doing this, because people need to be able to ask questions about it. And um, I don't always know the answers. I've only been here five months, but hopefully I can answer any questions that you might have. But all that to say, let's start out right now with um, looking at scripture. And so I'm going to ask you to buckle your seatbelt and hold on to your hat because we're going to go from Genesis to Revelation. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Seems to be something I like to do. Well, oh well. Okay, so the Bible starts in a garden, right? Genesis 2, verse 8, starts in a garden, the Garden of Eden. God created the world. It's lush and green, and there's the first man and the first woman in a garden. But as the Bible progresses, you see that it ends, the Bible ends with the people of God in a city. And in the city is a garden. It's the best of both worlds. You have all the you know, luxury of a city, all the greatness of a city, all the close proximity of many people in a city. Wherever there are many people, you'll find that there is a city. I read recently that Birmingham contains how much, what percentage of the population of Alabama? It's a huge percentage. That's what I thought it was a quarter. I needed someone with better um, statistical skills. Thank you, Talitha. I think it is, I thought it was 25%. Metro area. Metro area is 25% of the whole population of Alabama. So there's something, what happens when you get all these people together? Well, God has a vision and a purpose for many of us being together because as we saw last week, he desires to multiply voluntary worshipers of him. He wants us to be fruitful and multiply so that there would be many people joining their voices in heaven, in that heavenly city that comes down on earth, that new Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, there are many people in that city. And yet, even in the midst of close proximity with each other, there's the beauty of the garden. You have the garden right there in that city of light. 
How wonderful. So that's Revelation 21.10 and 22.1 through 2 that we see that city with the garden in the middle of it. So there's something about cities that God loves. We think, I don't know about you, but sometimes when you're walking around the city, you might think, oh, it's dirty. I don't know about it. When I was in New York City, I moved to New York City in 2001, nine days after 9-11. My new roommate said we had planned that I would move in on September 15th, 2001. She called me and she said, you don't want to move here. You should change your mind. You need to go somewhere else. It's horrible after the destruction of the World Trade Towers. The pollution was horrible. The spirit in the city was terrible. I didn't have a job yet. She thought that I wouldn't be able to find one because there would be an economic downturn. All of that, and yet I thought, nope, this is where I'm called to be. And so I pushed her and pushed her, and it ended up being September 20th that I moved in. Um, And when I lived in the city, in New York City, for those three years, one of the things, one of my first observations was just the filth of the city. You notice this when you're in the city. You notice, I realized that, um, I made this observation to my sister. I said, I figured out that all those puddles on the sidewalk, they're not water. And she said, oh no, they're not. Don't walk in them. Step over them. You just learn that there's all these people together, there's a certain measure of filth. The trash is right there on the side of the road. The snow is beautiful for about a half an hour. And then the, the grime just turns it into gray sludge. Well, all of those, those aspects of the city are going to be eradicated in that heavenly city. There will be no pollution. There will be, hmm, I don't know about the puddles. We'll see. I bet God has a plan for the puddles. I think. No, definitely not. Definitely not. But I don't, I, I'm, I'll be curious to see God's solution to that. Yeah. But all that to say, the city is a place that God loves. And we see this um, through this um, heavenly city in Revelation 21 that descends from heaven. We see it also in Jonah, of all places. Remember Jonah, the prophet who was told by God to go and preach repentance to the Ninevites, those great enemies of of Israel, to go and tell them to repent, otherwise the Lord would destroy them. And he says, no way, I am not going to preach to them because I know what you're like. God, I know that if I preach and they repent, you'll just welcome them back. You won't destroy them. I want you to smite them. And Jonah doesn't get his way because they repent. And God um, has compassion on them, forgives them. And so Jonah sits there and pouts under that tree. He pouts. And God ends the book of Jonah by saying, I love that great city. How could I not love that great city where there are so many people? And interesting enough, so much cattle besides. It's a very interesting passage. Through that, we see God's passion for human beings, for that great city. He loves people as we are living in proximity to each other. And that means that he has a plan for some of the ills that happen when there's uh, a lot of people living all together. Um, And one of the things that we see in the city is that material poverty is right in our faces. It exists in other parts of um, the state, you know, it exists in rural areas in very significant ways, but we are confronted with it. And as an urban church, we're confronted with it all the time, or we ought to be. It's all around us. Material need is all around us. And yet, material need is not the only kind of poverty that there is. And I will say that um, a lot of this, I'm, uh, a lot of um, what 
is, is shaping the ministry, the outreach ministry at the Advent right now, is scripture, and then also this book called When Helping Hurts. And I think I put that on your sheet, that you can find out more about, about the vision by reading that book and looking at other kinds of need, not, not just material need. Material need is always before us, as, as the Lord says in scripture. And um, so we're going to look at that today, but yet we have to remember that um, we're all equal no matter what our needs are. And our needs, every single one of us, are very great. Material, spiritual, emotional needs. We are all needy people. Um, so that, that in mind, I'm just going to put that before you. And then looking in Scripture, looking at material poverty, we see it all throughout Scripture, and it's understood as being a part of the fallenness of all creation, that people would go hungry. And when the Lord gives the law to the people of Israel, we see in the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible, that God has a plan for eradicating poverty or at least alleviating poverty in the midst of the people of Israel. He desires that no one would be in severe lack and need. And he says in Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 11, there shall be no poor among you. And his plan for eradicating poverty takes on different, um, different characteristics. We see it through, um, and his idea is that should Israel obey this plan set forth in the law, they will then reveal to the nations around them, to the world, the character of God's holiness, that God cares for those in need, and that he, they would mirror this same character of God um, to the other nations by obeying the law. And so some of the different things that are built into God's law, into the Ten Commandments, and then the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible, are seen um, as an exposition and an application of the Ten Commandments. All those parts of Leviticus and um, Numbers and Deuteronomy where you're thinking, okay, well, that's very specific. What is that about? <laughs> it's an application of one of the Ten Commandments. And I challenge you as you're reading that, hopefully you've read it, hopefully you're challenged to read it, even if... It's a difficult thing to do, but I would encourage you as you read Leviticus and the other books of the law to ask yourself, which of the Ten Commandments is this applying in a very specific um, circumstance? I know that's, you can ask me questions about that if you want. It's a tough concept to think about, but um, in the Ten Commandments, right in the Ten Commandments, there's the law about the Sabbath. Well, yes, God rested on the seventh day, but the Sabbath, so there's that horizontal component of worship, having a day of rest and worship. But there's also um, this sense in which God builds into his plan for human beings this idea that you cannot just go 24-7 without serious detriment to ourselves. He is building into the laws for Israel protection for those who are working and laboring for others. It's labor unions right there. You'll have one day of rest. There's one day when no employer can make his worker work. There has to be one day off per week, and that's the Sabbath. Um, we see this Sabbath idea taken onto a broader scale, and I put that for you in Leviticus 25.10, the idea of the jubilee, that each of you, after, every, after a certain amount of time, people would be given the opportunity to return to their property. Every single person in Israel, every family, had a tie to the land, and that was their livelihood. And some people, as they were in extreme poverty, those Israelites would sell their land to someone else, 
and then they would have to go and work for someone else. They wouldn't be able to work their own land, and that was because they had they were impoverished. But the year of Jubilee was this built-in measure so that after a certain amount of time, everything would be freed up. Any land that you purchased would go right back to the original owner and the original family that had been designated for that portion of land. Has anybody heard that before about the year of Jubilee? Everything returns. Forgiveness. Isn't all debt forgiven? Yeah. You're right. All debt is forgiven. All slaves are set free. It's just this glorious year of, for it's a setting, resetting everything. Everything is reset. And it's a means of controlling poverty and not allowing poverty to, um, to multiply and to grow exponentially. Exactly, to become entrenched and generational. It cuts it off at one generation, gives them a nooch, a leg up, if you will. So there's also this idea in Leviticus 19 of gleaning. Um, the Lord says to them, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. You shall leave the gleanings, the grapes, and the wheat. You'll leave that at the edge of your field for the poor, who could then come by and pick up whatever was left over and eat even though they might not have had land, even though they sold their land and didn't have a means of supporting themselves, there was the opportunity for them to eat off of um, the gleanings of other people. One way of doing this, I find, is to, um, you know all the ones and the change? It, if you just put it all in the same place, it's kind of like the gleanings, isn't it? It's the edges. You don't always notice that it's gone if you have a little bit of financial margin. Sometimes we don't have the financial margin to do this. But if we do, what a great thing to have a big jar where you just put all your ones and all your coins. And eventually that could be used, that could be like the gleanings that you would just give over to someone else, to, to the right ministry, the right charity that will use it for good purposes for those in need. It's just an idea, but one way of applying this idea of the gleanings, that there's margins for those in financial need. Um, Another thing in, um, the, in the Pentateuch, in Leviticus 25:35, the Lord says, If your brother becomes poor, take no interest from him. The Lord is saying there, um, don't have loans with any, give out loans with no interest. Can you imagine? No interest to other Israelites, specifically to other Israelites. But there's that idea of not wanting to perpetuate and um, poverty and roll it over um, and cause someone to be even deeper in the hole. All of this to say um, that this image, this, um, this character of holiness that God desires for his people of Israel is put forward and yet we know from the history of the people of Israel and just from our own human fallenness, they are, I keep saying this, they are no more or less fallen than we. Were we the chosen people of Israel, we would have failed because of our sin, and they fail. They fail to show forth God's holiness and his character to the world. And this failure encompasses many different areas. They're, they worship other gods. They worship the gods of the people around them. They do all these other things. But the prophet Amos is one of those prophets that speaks to this fallenness of the people of Israel, and he calls them back to a holiness and a righteousness that comes from God alone. Um, and he's, he's suggesting in Amos 2, verses 6 through 8, that the Lord would um, look upon the sins of Israel and, and punish the sins of Israel. And he's looking specifically at the sin of not caring for the poor, among other sins. So he talks about this, um, they, I will not revoke punishment, now I'm quoting Isaiah, uh, Amos 2, I will not revoke the punishment because they, Israel, tramples the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. 
it's pretty serious. So in that, where is there hope for us and hope for those in significant material need? Well, there's hope. Um, it, of course, God has hope. God cares for the poor. God cares for us, um, for that spiritual poverty, for material poverty, for emotional poverty. And we see this in the life of Jesus um, in his death and resurrection, um, whereby we are freed from the bondage to sin, whereby there's some measure of hope that we can change, um, that the Holy Spirit will change our own lives, our own selves on the inside, and that from the inside out, God will then change the world around us. And we see this in Jesus. Jesus right there in Luke chapter 4 quotes that great prophet Isaiah from Isaiah 61. And he says, the Lord has anointed me. Uh, well, he says, first of all, the, whole, the Spirit of God is upon me. And the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Well, that good news that Jesus has to the poor is to those who are poor in spirit, which means all of us, and those who are poor materially as well. Because as those who are poor in spirit, every single one of us have our hearts changed and transformed, we will begin to see the needs of others. We'll be moved by compassion, just like God's own heart is moved by compassion for those in need. So we see this. We see this happening in the early church. The early church appears to have shared property with each other all throughout the church. Um, they, um, they believed the Lord was coming back imminently, and they said, well, why do we need this land? We don't need it. And someone else needs something. So we're going to sell it, and we're going to make sure that there are no needs unmet material, materially in our midst. We see that in Acts chapter 2. Um, we see it also in the way that um, in Galatians, uh, the Apostle Paul is talking about how he goes to Jerusalem and talks with the um, other leaders of the church in Jerusalem about these Gentiles coming to faith. And they agree that these Gentiles would not need to be circumcised, but that they should believe in Jesus, be baptized, refrain from sexual immorality, and remember the poor. He says that right there in Galatians. It's one of the very things, one of those very <coughs> simple things that he's urging Paul to have these newfound believers remember. Remember the poor. That's part of um, Christian holiness is to remember the poor. Well, so um, any questions about that? Any questions about all of, <laughs> all of Scripture, about the city, about the garden, about material poverty and God's character of holiness in the Old Testament law, about the failure to keep up the law, and yet the, um, the hope that we have through that inner transformation in Jesus Christ that then goes outward in our actions horizontally to the world. Anybody want to? I love challenges and rebuttals. Or, yeah? Yeah, well, I, I sort of tripped over, I mean, I, I love what you're doing. I sort of tripped over the, the material property as part of the fallen creation. Yeah. It's absolutely true. But couldn't you also say that material possession is part of the Creation. Material possessions are part of the fallenness of creation. Right. Right. For your very existence, you know what I mean? To provide. So it's kind of a uh, the fact of accumulation. It almost is a, is a and you could argue that you see the same thing when Jesus sends out his disciples to minister. Remember, he sends out the 70 and he says, take nothing with you. Yeah. Take only one pair of clothing. Take enough, you know, don't even take any food. Just go and rely on the hospitality of others. There's a sense in which that requires great faith. 
I don't know that we're there yet in our spiritual holiness. We, we live in the fallenness. Right, we live in the fallenness. If that's an ideal, then yes. And I, I look at one of my close friends is a missionary in China. And I helped her in New York City. She packed up everything she owned. She sold it all. Everything she owned when she moved to China fit in one suitcase. And she then moved to China, and she doesn't plan to come back. She's there. She's there in China preaching the gospel. I won't say her name because I'm not supposed to. I mean, it's that kind of, it's that kind of radical faith. And um, we can pray for that. We can pray for that, and we can expect to see it as God works in our lives. But there is also, and we see it too. I mean, I think you're right. I was... I think you're right in that I see this in myself. Oh, I just need this thing. I just need, uh, I just need another suit jacket. Like how many suits do we need? How many, how many dishes do we need? How many glasses do we need? Now how, you know, table settings for 20. I don't know. But um, these are things that, that we can ask ourselves. Do we really need this? Do I really need this? And I think those are really good questions to be asking. Is this better used this way or in some other way? Yeah. Talitha? Speaking to that a little bit, I mean, maybe it's just the idea of possession that's the fallenness. Mm-hmm. Because clearly when Jesus sent out the 70, he was expecting them to go places where they would have things to give them. Right. right? So he wasn't expecting them to be received by people who also had nothing because then they wouldn't be able to share. But he was expecting them to be able to go, and those people would freely give. They wouldn't Right. They wouldn't grasp or cling to I think he, you're like... Right on it. Did you? Did everybody get what Talitha said? That that um, the people having possessions is necessary to be able to share with those who don't. You know, if there are people going out in faith without those materials, so it really is about possessing. And I'm sure you've heard a sermon preached on, do you possess your possessions or do they yeah. possess yeah. you? Which is a very good question to be asking ourselves. Um, and we see it also in the early church. There was we could, there was probably a conflict between those who were super super apostles who went out the way Jesus sent out those early disciples during his ministry versus those who were in it for the long haul knew that they, yeah, there's Paul who's a tent maker, Priscilla and Aquila are tent makers. Um, So any other questions about that too as we keep going on and looking at material need in the Bible? Okay, so the question now becomes God cares about those in material need. Um, our need is not just, you know, we're all, every single person is in need in some way. And there's a sense in which that, that verse in Galatians 3, 28, um, there is no Jew or Greek in Jesus Christ. All are equal. We are all equal in Jesus' eyes. And I think that we have to be careful because as we give, as we might have more resources in one way than someone else, there's the danger that we would um, look at them and just it's human nature and not see them as equals with us. That is human nature to do that. And I think one of the things as Christians is to, we need to do is to guard our hearts against that. And one of the ways to guard our hearts against that is to be ever conscious of our own need, to be um, really in relationship with people in physical need and to recognize that as we see their need, um, it reflects back and sh- sheds light on our own need. Um, and so I think of that just in terms of parenthood. Um, I'm not a parent, but I once heard the best explanation of parenthood that um, the whole purpose of parenthood is to um, work yourself out of a job. <laughs> that from the moment that infant is born, 
you are trying to teach that child self-sufficiency. No, you don't really need, you know you're really not going to get all of your nourishment through an IV. It's like in the womb, it's sort of like an IV. They can do whatever they want. They don't have to think about time. They don't think about light. They don't think about dark. They don't have to learn how to eat on their own. They don't even have to have, they don't, you know, they might be practicing the sucking reflex, but that food, that nourishment, just gets pumped right through the placenta, right into their bodies, their little tiny bodies. And from that point on, from birth on, they have to learn not to be dependent in ever-increasing ways. Um, and the same is true essentially, um, and well, I will say as an adult, and when your children are adults, what a wonderful thing to have an equal and free relationship with your adult children. To see that they don't need you for material things, but they, they will tr you have suddenly become equals with them. Um, that there is a fellowship and a friendship that does not have any aspect of power. There's no one-way direction um, in that relationship, but it can actually become two-way in preparation, in preparation for later on in life when we, as adults, as we age, will need their help, will need the flow of resources to go in the other direction. We will need, perhaps, their financial support. Maybe we're blessed not to need it. But we will need their physical support. We'll need them to help us get changed. We'll need them to help us with the very basics of daily living. And so I would argue that parenthood is preparation for the day when the tables will be reversed. Um, and I think of that in relationship with people in material need. There's the danger that we would adopt this paternalistic parenthood approach and say, well, we're going to give them everything that they need with that, so that they don't have a care in the world. They don't have to um, learn to take care of themselves in any way. And so one of the things about outreach at the Advent that I think is so important, and, I, and I, we're seeking to build this into every ministry, or the big picture of the ministries that we support um, in every ministry that we're involved in. That there, it, it, If you think about it with the metaphor of a hospital, in a hospital there are some places where, and I got to do this when I did my, my chaplaincy internship in a hospital, they put me in the emergency department, if you can imagine it. So I got to um, be, I had the privilege of being with people in acute need. And one of the situations that we always had to do in the emergency room was to determine how acute is this person's need, really. Um, the doctors and nurses have to prioritize and say, this person is in severe need, this person was life flighted here, or um, this person is, something's going on with them, but we're not sure what. And you'll often find that, I don't know, how many of you have sat in an emergency room for hours and wondered what was going on? There's a prioritizing, not that our needs are not important, but it's their job to figure out who needs desperate attention right now. That's called triage. And I think when we look at material need in our city, there's a sense in which we want to be doing triage. We need the emergency department. We need to be giving food to people who are immediately hungry, who don't have um, hope, who have no idea where their next meal is going to come from, who um, don't know where they're going to spend the night because they don't have a place to live, who don't know how they're going to pay their next bill, who don't um, have the resources to be able to answer those immediate questions for them. So there's that triage. And yet then on another level, there's also preventative care, isn't there? In hospitals, you'll see preventative care, you'll see rehab, you'll see um, that day-to-day -day, um, tender care and 
hoping that the patient will get back to health, that they'll take part in their own journey to health. Um, and a lot of that is necessary. And so that's why the ministry is divided up not just into triage, but also into long-term solutions to poverty that, um, will inst that involve development of various resources, education, um, uh, other things that will cultivate and help change kind of also what are their psychologists, psychologically. Often there's a victim mentality. And we saw this in Nicaragua, and if you were here last week, you'll remember there's this fatalist approach that um, nothing will ever change, that it'll never get better, and that God wills it to be that way, that God wills for them to live in a mud hut. And so there's no way out of it. And one of our jobs is to be in relationship with them and to encourage them, to give them hope and to show them that really is possible to change that, that God does desire good things for them and he desires them to work to get them. And so even though there's this wonderful picture of um, supporting those in material need, there is also the sense um, that um, Paul, when he's speaking to the Thessalonians, he says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat that we desire for people to have self-sufficiency, to work for their own, on their own behalf, not just because it helps work us out of a job, just like parents are working themselves out of a job, but it actually creates a sense of dignity. Um, remember, I'm sure each of you has had a little child in your life that tied their shoes for the first time on their own, and they said, Mom, I did it. That's what we want to see. We want to, we want to see people saying, I did it, with joy and confidence and dignity. And that's possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, um, as you'll see, that, that is part of um, the vision for Outreach at the Advent. And one last thing, why do we give materially? Well, we give um, not just because of how it reflects on us. Yes, we give because we're supposed to give materially. We give because God tells us to. It's part of the law. It, it's part of God's intention and his heart for his people, as we saw in the Old Testament in the people of Israel. But we also give, and this is a more effective motivation to get ourselves moving. We give because we have received so graciously, so much from God through Jesus Christ. And Paul appeals to this same um, gratitude, the gratitude in, that comes from knowing just how much we need Jesus, that as we are great, great, um, grateful and joyful about what God has done for us, we then, our hearts are free. We suddenly become those cheerful givers that they talk about in scripture without thinking twice about it and without let, letting our left hand know what our right hand is doing. It's not about us. It's about God because he's the one who's given us everything. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ our Lord. So you can ask me questions right now. One of the things I'm going to do, this turned off, but I want to draw your attention to our website. And on our website, you'll see that there is... Um, we have a listing of everything that we support financially, and the things that we support financially, I'm going to turn this off so you can see it. Um, the things that we support financially are also things that we hope to get involved in as volunteers. 
Is that better? Can you see it? Okay, so all of these things that are listed on our website, and this is under the on the outreach page on the website, you'll see that all of these things um, cover different areas. Some are triage and some are preventative care. Some are um, ways of trying to work ourselves out of a job, work ourselves out of the calling to give sacrificially. Um, the, the poor will always be in your midst. That's what Jesus says to the disciples, and he's quoting Deuteronomy. But we know that, um, that we still want to work ourselves out of, job, out of a job. We want to work at working ourselves out of a job. So um, I put down criteria for outreach opportunities that the Advent support, and I'm just going to read through these. While I show you some of these websites, I encourage you to go to these websites. If you are interested in volunteering in any way, this is the best way to learn about volunteering. We have um, Tuesday and Thursday volunteers right here at the Advent who work so tirelessly and faithfully in that triage moment to feed those who might not have a meal that day. Um, and so we do that through Church of the Reconciler on Tuesdays and right here at the Advent on Thursday mornings at 8.30, beginning with our worship service and then with a meal that's given out. But we also support these other ministries, and I'm just going to cycle through their websites because they provide, I encourage you to go to them, they provide opportunities, very specific ways that you can get involved in helping to meet those material needs that exist right here in Birmingham. So the criteria for outreach opportunities at the Advent, um, those ministries that we um, prioritize and want to support, um, first and foremost, are those that are gospel-centered, those that are faith-based, just like Bridge right here, um, those that preach the gospel not just through actions, yes, our actions of love point to Jesus Christ, but there's a, a way of saying it. Sometimes we, we think that that's all we need to do is just serve, without saying why we serve. And it's so important to say why we serve, um, to say that it is, in fact, in Jesus' name. This is a ministry of a ministry at the um, universities in, in Birmingham through the Episcopal Church. Um, the next criteria, it must reach outside of Advent's walls. For it to be outreach, that's kind of a no-brainer, but, um, but you wouldn't always think that. Sometimes there are things that we need to do to support our own community. That's called pastoral care. This is called outreach. Um, the First Light is a shelter that helps women in need who don't have a place to stay. Um, the next criteria, there must be a diversity of kingdom investment for a variety of short-term and long-term needs. That's the hospital I was talking about. Triage versus preventative care. Um, we also um, seek to sh know that the funds that are given from the Advent were going to be wisely and transparently given. We've had experience where people are not upfront about how they use the money that we've given them or they don't always apply for funding. They want the money but they don't just fill out, all they need to do is fill out an application and even the logistical failure suggests to us that something else is going on, that it's a red flag for us. Um, we give preference to ministries that will have difficulty finding funds elsewhere. Um, some people don't understand how to fundraise, and yet we might see a gospel-driven opportunity that um, the Lord is really working and moving in. And so we say, wow, we don't think they'll get money anywhere else. So we want to get them off on their feet. Um, preference is also given to ministries that the Advent can support, not just financially, but also through volunteers. 
it's so important that relationship is established, that there's a long-term um, give and take because that's how we're changed in the giving. It's not just through writing a check. Writing checks are good and dropping them off, but that gets us off the hook in some ways emotionally. It allows us to step back and not become personally involved in a ministry that will change other people's lives and that will change our lives also. Um, one of our biggest ministries that we're most involved in, not just financially, but also with volunteers that's outside the church, is Restoration Academy. And I encourage you to look at their website online because they have great ways to get involved. And we also, um, one of our guilds is very active in ministering to the second grade class there. Um, and so they've developed a long-term relationship with them. We also had some of them go with us to... Um, to Nicaragua, and that was a great opportunity, a great way to minister to them. Oh, there are just so many. I'm putting them up, and you can just see how many there are. Um, finally, um, we, we, I also say that it, if for some reason an organization is not gospel-centered, and we have a couple of those that are not, we look to see that they are, in fact, then somehow feeding and serving one of the other ministries that we do support um, heavily that is gospel-centered. It's got to be something that feeds into something else. And Magic City Harvest is a great example of that one. There's no gospel proclamation, but through their giving, through that creative ministry, they, they recover food that's not being used, and they bring it to the places where people are hungry. And we support a lot of those other places, those shelters and things, where people are hungry. So it's a great symbiotic relationship. Okay, ask me questions. What would you like to know? Are you kidding? Real? I just I encourage you to go to the website. There are just so many opportunities out there, so many ways to get involved. Um, there's um, there are ways um, and ways that you might be involved on your own, and those are always things we want to know about. We want to know. Um, what parishioners have gotten involved in that we might not actively be supporting through the budget at this point because it helps us know what's out there in the city of Birmingham. We helps, it helps us know um, what you're involved in and helps us um, support you in that. So, any other questions? Or no questions? There haven't been I any questions. Have a question. Yeah, just, comment. I was just thinking of an experience that I felt like was a good ministry mm. uh, involving a homeless man that my neighborhood. I do live in the city mm -hmm. on the same street I grew up on, not the same house, but I have both houses. Yes. Um, but anyway, make a lot of time. I know I don't have time to go into it, but make a long story short. Bobby was a house painter who got where he couldn't paint because he lost his vision. His vision was getting bad. And he was a friend of the girl that lives in the house I grew up in. My mother was my mother's house. And um, Southwest, as so many street people do, he didn't have a place to live, and he wouldn't go to a shelter, and he was living with us most of the street people do, you know, beer and cigarettes with his wife, mm -hmm. and he worked in a little grocery store at the corner, cleaning up for him, but he had a message before he had the stroke. I took him into my mother's home during the cold weather, I let him sleep on the sofa. Mm -hmm. I didn't mind that, I was never afraid that he would take anything, he was you know, he was not, he was not an educated man, but he knew what was going on in the world. Mm -hmm. He picked up with things. And 
he was, you know, I just told him he could not throw his beer cigarettes in the house. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he had a massive stroke mm. and he died. Oh. And um, we could not find any family anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so um, he was a cook of when he died. I mean, mm. um, so anyway, the, I don't know where the chaplain at Cooper Green is now, since Cooper Green is in the mm -hmm. situation it's in. But his, they have a chaplain there, and he was in charge of having the you know, bodies buried in the uh, cemetery for the indigent, which is out on I-65. I had never been out mm -hmm. there. It's about 20 miles out on I-65. So we asked him, you know, to let us know, and mm -hmm. then we go out there. And so my husband and I went, and our neighbor on the corner, and the girl that lived in the upstairs at mm -hmm. my mother's house, and we drove out there. And I mean, this was an experience. It was in June two years ago. It was hot as everything, and they were still digging the grave when we got there, so they would not let us in through the gates till we got there. Mm -hmm. So we drive up. Family came to us. We drive up there, and on this old dirt road, and it was. Uh, this beautiful green, I mean, it was, you know, a very beautiful setting. And he said, uh, the minister said, we are going, he's on this left side of the road, right over here. So it was, it, we had heavy rain, it had been real hot, the ground was kind of cracked. And mm -hmm. There was a minister and Jim and Kay and Gloria and me, and there was a couple there, so a couple. Mm -hmm. And so the minister said, let me introduce you to Mr. and Ms., and I cannot remember their name. They, he said, these people have a wonderful ministry. They come to this cemetery every time we have someone to bury, so there will be somebody there. Isn't that wonderful? Mm -hmm. That's so kind. And she carried the words and a little greenery. And we all stood around. They finally had the casket in the bottom, just a simple coffee on the bottom of the world. Mm -hmm. We were all standing there. And It's uh, God yeah. said, when you do it, you are absolutely right, <laughs> right, Chris. Thank you for sharing that. And that it really is that we are serving and Jesus. The, about that time, this warm breeze blew, and it was just like it was the breath of God. Thank you. Heard a pin drop. It was so quiet, and he had a little, you know, red and some and I thought, what a wonderful ministry that is. Sure. I mean, and I yeah. thought, maybe I could get involved in that. Of course, sure. I haven't done that. But well, but... Thank you for sharing that because it shows that it really is Jesus Christ that we're serving when we're, and also with that particular individual, you knew him, and so you're already involved in his life. And one of the great things about that, and one of the things we encourage people, you know, as we're confronted with poverty on the street right here outside our church in the morning when someone is asking us for money, we actually encourage, and I encourage you to spread the word on this, that giving people money right on the street is not good not helpful and the reason for that is that the number one and two issues that people who are on the street are dealing with are addiction 
and mental illness. And so giving them a few dollars is really not going to help them. But I encourage you to partner with other ministries that will be helping them. We also have flower, flyers that we can give out that help them know where they can go a couple blocks and get a sandwich or something yeah, like that. You know, right, Jimmy Hale. Bright orange. Bright, bright orange. orange. Folder that has all kinds of referral agencies in it if you need somebody on the street. One of their issues yeah. And that's one of the things that we'll be working as a ministry to keep updated. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for your work in the world. We ask that you would transform our hearts for your glory and for the benefit of people everywhere. Do your work in us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.